We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Omani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmont. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, kind of picking it up in the middle of this thought, Paul said, and I write this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe or to exaggerate. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. That whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Lord, just thank you for this Bible that we have as the authority of our life. And God, I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. I pray you would open our ears because your word says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, I pray you'd open our hearts, Father, because we know if it just reaches our head, then we're in big trouble. God, do a work, and I pray you would teach us as a congregation, Lord, how to restore someone. Because in essence, that's what you're teaching in this text today. And so give us uh, wisdom, Lord, to connect the dots and to bring application. Bless Calvary Chapel, Amani. Bless your people. And if there's anyone, Lord, even maybe here today or out there in highways and byways that needs to be restored, Lord, I pray you would bring that to pass. And I ask in Jesus' name. A number of years ago, an angry man rushed through a museum in Amsterdam until he reached Rembrandt's famous painting called The Night Watch. When he got there, he took out a knife and he slashed it repeatedly before he could be stopped. A short time after that, another man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with a hammer and began to smash Michelangelo's sculpture uh, the Pieta. And so in a short period of time, tragically, two cherished works of art were severely damaged. But what did the officials do? Well, what they did is they didn't give up. Uh, they didn't throw them away. No, what they did is they called the best experts who worked with the utmost care and precision, and they exerted every effort to restore these treasures. You know, and God does the same thing. Uh, I hope you guys know here today that you are a treasure. I hope you know that every person out there, they're made in the image of God, and therefore 
They are treasures. And we need to know that if ever the tragedies of the enemies come in to in any way mar God's treasures, then God will do all that he can to restore those treasures. As a matter of fact, that's the mission that we have at hand. God is in the business of restoring lives. You know, when you look at this story right here, we're going to see this is one of the issues that was creating conflict in Corinth. Because there was a man who had been caught in sexual sin. And uh, at first they didn't want to discipline him. When they finally did discipline him, they went to the other extreme and they didn't restore him. And so Paul, with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and just that apostolic authority, he writes to them and tells them, you know, you got to restore this guy. Um, and he's going to see if they're obedient in this. And that's really our heart as Christians because that's God's heart towards all of us. You know, when we look at our text today, I know there's a lot of other things entailed in restoration, but three things stand out. One is, first of all, loving communication. Loving communication. Secondly, is obedient cooperation. Obedient cooperation. And then thirdly, is a knowledgeable congregation. Because let's just say there's someone out there who needs to be restored. Let's just say there's someone in here today who needs to be restored. It's not going to be a one-man job. It's not going to be something, well, necessarily Manny or the pastors will do. It really is something that requires the cooperation of the entire congregation. And that's why Paul here is writing to the church in Corinth. And what we see, first of all, loving communication, again there in verse 3, Paul said, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. You see, it's a loving communication. Again, if you were here last week, you remember they were upset with him because he didn't go visit them. Paul is explaining why he didn't visit them. He was only trying to iron things out via a very corrective letter before he showed up in person. Now, some teachers believe that the letter he's referring to here is 1 Corinthians, but most teachers, myself included, tend to lean more towards another letter that was written between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, a letter that was much more severe that we no longer have. But it doesn't really matter which letter it was. We know this. We know this. It was a love letter. It was a love letter because the very people who in one sense were supposed to be sources of joy were actually sources of grief, stress, and extreme sadness. Paul loved them he knew this wasn't right, and so he began to write, right? He wanted joy. I like that in verse 3. I don't know if you could see it there. I mean, just joy, joy, joy. He, he mentions it three times in that one verse. Now, I don't know about you, but I like joy. I, I really do. Joy is cool. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, God loves to see his people Bearing that fruit of the Spirit called joy. God loves to see, did you know this? He loves to see his people smile and laugh. Did you guys know that? And journey with joy. 
And, and we should have the same heart. And the word joy here, Paul's pushing for, is a fruit of the Spirit. I would say like this, it's a smile of the soul. It's a little different than happiness, because happiness is more along the lines of circumstances going your way. Joy is an inner smile of the soul that knows everything is going God's way, and you're cool with that. Uh, joy, however, cannot be found in a setting of sin. And if you're in sin, you won't have joy. And if there's sin in the camp or sin wherever it might be in the confines of your family and it's not being dealt with, there won't be joy. And Paul here says, man, I want to have joy. I, I want, you know, you guys should be uh, sources of joy to me and I should in one sense be sources of joy to you. But the thing that's happening is sin is coming between us. The devil is trying to divide us. The devil is trying to condemn this guy for some reason we can't agree on what to do with him. And so he says, I want to iron this out before I get there. He says, I'm writing this letter so that when I journey to see you, we'll have joy together. And I pray for you guys as a congregation, I pray for us that we would long to have joy in our lives. You know, a lot of Christians, for whatever reason, they lack joy. It seems like, you know, they've got like a frown painted on their face, you know. I mean, and some churches are like that. They think that you're more holy if you don't laugh. You know, you're more holy if you don't smile. You know, you're more holy if you're not upbeat or vibrant. you got to be like some monk of some, you know, 4th century Christian monastery. No. Uh, joy is the fruit of the Spirit. And there's a lot of Christians, I think, that lack it. I read a story about a conference at a denominational church in Omaha where people were given helium-filled balloons and they were told to release them at some point during the service when they felt like expressing the joy in their hearts. And I know that's kind of weird, but, you know, it's happened, right? And this particular denomination wasn't free to say, Hallelujah, Jesus. That's weird, huh? <laughs> And so uh, they went through the service, uh, so balloons were released. But when it was over, approximately one-third of the balloons were not released because they never found joy in their hearts. And so we Christians, of all people, should be a joyful people. Did you guys know that? When you're witnessing at work, when you're walking through life, when you're shopping at Ralph's or wherever it might be, Vaughn's, is there joy in your life? I mean, people should see it. Uh, in the Chronicles of History, there's an account of a third century man who was anticipating death. And he penned these last words to a friend. He said this, It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy in which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of our life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. They are people of joy. These people are the Christians. And as he's about to die, he said, and I now am one of them. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is powerful. Paul's writing, he says, this is the way our relationship should be. And he's really working towards it. You see, joy makes things right by getting right with God. It's this love letter that Paul writes to them, written, notice again there in verse 4, 
Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. You see, it was a love letter. Any of you guys write your husband's love letter? I mean, your wife's love letters? Just out of curiosity? They're pretty cool, huh? But not just to the one that you love romantically. Uh, we should be writing love letters probably to the ones we love with agape love, right? Our communication. Paul writes it, however, written with great anguish, great distress. I don't know if you've ever written a letter like that. Maybe it was an email. Maybe it was a phone call. Maybe it was a a face-to-face -face confrontation. Have you ever been there with great anguish, great distress, but you know there needs to be some sort of loving communication in order to restore the joy in the relationship that you have? And that place of anguish requires loving communication. You see, these types of love letters, I don't know if you've ever been there, but they are written more with tears than they are with ink. I know girls don't like to cry because it ruins their mascara. I understand that, right? Don't make me cry. You know, and I know guys don't like to cry because they think it's a sign of weakness when it's not. But the truth is, if we've had any type of love life at all, if we've ever loved deeply, we will hurt deeply. It's life. And it might even happen frequently in family or in ministry. And I know me, I'm like, well, Lord, I don't want any more of that. Let that never happen again. But we have to understand that that's, that's the ministry. You know, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 19, Paul said, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials. Let me tell you something. If you're going to enter into the ministry, you will have many tears and trials. Later on, he said in verse 31, Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Night and day with tears. See, this is how we serve. Even our Lord Jesus Christ cried over Jerusalem. And I think it's helpful to know that we're in the company of Christ and godly Christians over the years who have shed tears. But let me also tell you something. It's also comforting to know that God is aware of every tear we cry, every hurt we have, every pain we possess. And according to Psalm 56, verse 8, He keeps every single tear that you ever cry in a bottle. So some of you probably have five-gallon jugs, you know, <laughs> multiple, you know. But it's okay, and it's like, I, I don't know how it's going to work. Some people say, well, that's not literal, it's just, you know, symbolic. But, you know what, the rule of interpretation, if it makes sense, seek no other sense. We don't have to figure, you know, uh, look at that in a figurative way. God one day is going to blow you away. He's going to blow your minds. And he says, look, mijo, all the tears you've ever cried for me. Now, tears are important. I believe it's the tears that will lead to the joy. The Bible says this, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. See? Paul wanted joy, but before the joy, there had to be tears. It was all set in motion with this loving communication, and I don't know if you've ever had to write a letter like that. You know, if you've ever truly, uh, man, penned that, you know, painful 
writing motivated by love for the recipients. It's not self-serving, it's loving. It's not legalistic, it's loving. It's not harsh, it's loving. But at the same time, it's not lying, it's loving. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says, speaking the truth in love. And we got to do that, huh? When you speak to people, man, the way you say things, uh, even your tone of voice, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's all part of communicating the truth in love. It's kind of like, are you guys, any of you here familiar with emoji? Just out of curiosity, you guys know what emoji is? It's a little symbols, you know, when you're text messaging someone and every once in a while I'll just say something like thank you to my wife or, you know, yes. And she'll be like, I need emoji, you know? Because <laughs> what kind of a thank you was it? Was it thank you? Or was it like... Thank you, Danny. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's that there's that element of communicating, but you're communicating with love. Let that always be our heart. You know, I think sometimes people will communicate things, but it's it's for their own interest or really not motivated by love for the individual. You know, how do we do this? I believe the Lord will show us. When you write that letter, what I encourage you guys to do, and I want to just really make sure, because I know this by experience, don't do it hastily. You know, it might be an email you're going to send out to someone. I have learned not to send a certain email immediately. Seriously, I'll write the email one day, and then I'll put it in my draft. And the next day, I'll look at it again. And then a few days later, I'll look at it again. And I'll just ask God to, you know, show me what to do. I've learned over the years that a lot of times he says, no, that's not what my will was. We need to wait. And sometimes the Lord says send, he might say no, or he might say go. Kind of like he did with Nathan, if you remember Nathan the prophet. When it was time for him to confront David, it had been a year and a half, you know, the Lord showed him. And there's no doubt in my mind that Nathan was crying, he was weeping, he was seeking the Lord. And here's David and he's suffering in his sin. I mean, you read Psalm 51, you read Psalm 32, and this guy was suffering in his sin. And so finally, one day, Nathan goes and he confronts him and he says, you know, um, here's a guy, you know, he steals a sheep and belonged to a guy who only had one sheep. You had a you know, thousand sheep. And that was him and referring to the fact that David had slept with Bathsheba. He knew all about it, but David never got right with it. And so Nathan confronts him in a loving way. Now, sometimes we have to do that, you guys. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, verse 5, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Let me ask you a question. Do you love them? In a very practical nutshell, the wisdom of that proverb says it's better to show your love by saying something than it is to hide your love by saying nothing at all. And so, God, help us. May God show us how to deal with these things. God help us to be, you know, open to be correctors, and God help us uh, to be open to be corrected. Uh, on the way over here, I was talking to my son, and we were talking about, you know, the name of Jesus and just the different um, ways that it was transliterated and translated, and I used the wrong word. He's all, he's all translated, Dad. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, not transliterated. There's a difference here. And, you know, uh, prayerfully, I'm more open to correction than just, you know, the pronunciation of certain words, the use of certain words. Are you open to be corrected? Are you cool with that? 
You know, it's sad when some people aren't at all. You can't say anything to them. And you can't, they're just not teachable, right? Such behavior is actually self-destructive. You know, be open to correction. Be open to criticism. And, and at the same time, you know, praise God when it comes from somebody who loves you. You know they love you and they're just like, they're so cool. They bring their arm around you and effective rebuke is, is really... You know, that place where they put the arm around you and they tell you they love you and, hey, you know, I see this is going on. But it's not always going to come in such a friendly fashion. Take the criticism to the Lord and ask the Lord to show you what to do. But be open to it. Now, William Barclay said this. There are some people who take everything personally. Criticism, even when it is kindly meant and kindly given, they take as a personal insult. Here's, listen to this. Such people do more than any other kind of people to disturb the peace of fellowship. Because correction is powerful in the church. We have to be open. Paul here is going is to correct the Corinthians. It begins with loving communication, and then it continues with obedient <coughs> cooperation. Now look at verse 5. Again, he says, if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. And Paul there in verse 5 says, if anyone caused sadness, uh, he hasn't saddened me alone, but to some extent, and, and literally right here he says, uh, where he says not to be too, too severe, he says, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, he saddened all of you as well. Remember I was talking earlier about the difference between joy and grief? You want to know what brings grief? Sin. And here was a man in the church, and he was in sin, and that just created this crazy sadness, this grief in the congregation. Underneath it all, what we find is that the true source of grief is not correction, but transgression. In the long run, sin is what makes us sad. Did you guys know that? Did you ever get down? It's because of sin. And I'm not saying it's always your sin. Maybe it's someone else's that, that you know, breaks your heart. But sin is what makes us sad. You know, sure, sin is fun for a season, but it doesn't last long. Seasons change, and eventually that fantasy fun, it fades away, and reality then begins to set in. And what happens in life when we sin is we plant bad seeds, and then we go on to therefore reap rotten fruit. And so right here, you know, we're not 100% sure. Uh, many believe that Paul here is dealing with the issue he addressed in 1 Corinthians 5. And that was where, in the church, a man ha was shacking up. He was living in sexual sin with his uh, stepmom. Can you believe that? That's gross, huh? And so the church uh, wasn't dealing with it. Um, they were actually proud of it. They were like, hey, he's saying, come to our church, and then you can shack up with your mother-in-law, you know, or whatever, your stepmom. And it was, it was really gross. And so that's where Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 5. And he said, you guys got to get rid of that. You got to deal with this sin. Because a little leaven, he said, leavens the whole lump. He said, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that in the end, his soul might be saved. Right? 
And so, you know, he tells them what to do. And it's pretty cool. They're cooperating with him. And so they dealt with the sin. They asked the sinner if he didn't want to repent to leave. But now a time had passed by and apparently this guy had repented. I mean, he had gotten his life right with the Lord, you see? And, but now they were going to the other extreme and there were some that said, no, you know, we don't ever want to deal with this individual. And, you know, and they were going to the, to the other extreme. See, we can either be too lenient in the church or we can be too harsh in the church. We have to be like Jesus. We have to have that balance. And that's what I think Paul is dealing with right here. Now, here's the thing. When you're dealing with sin in, in the church, um, you know, you want to bring them to that place of repentance and then restoration. Remember that. Repentance and then restoration. If they don't want to repent, they're not interested, they won't exert an effort, you know, then they're essentially saying, I'm not interested in God and the ways of God. And that's not a good place to be. If that's you or if that's them, the church knows, and the church has a responsibility to exercise church discipline. Tell the person and do it in, with tears. You love them, but if they do not want God's way in any way, then they need to part ways, right? And they're going to have to depart and find out what life is like apart from the Lord. Uh, when they do, our prayer is that they would look up because they'll be lying in the gutter and they'll give their life to Christ. You know, Paul had to do this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. He talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he delivered to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. You see, if we don't cooperate with the authority of God's word. I mean, Paul here is telling them, you know, what to do. He's being an apostle to them. He's being a leader to them. He's telling them, this is what you need to do with such a man. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and probably other times, you know, communicating his second visit, second letter. And he's guiding them along the way on how to bring this man to repentance and restoration. It's a cooperation that we have in the church, you know. It's interesting in Matthew 18 when such things happen, he says, and when they go out there, he said, you treat, treat them in, in one sense like a, a tax collector. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and in the book of Romans as well, it says you don't even eat with them. And you're like, wait a minute, don't eat with them? No, you, you can't because we want to bring them to repentance. And repentance, I believe this. The Lord will show you when somebody's really repentant. I mean, if they're still, you know, not interested in the welfare and the blessing of this church, then they're, they're not repentant. You know, you have to really ask the Lord to show you that time doesn't make people repentant. No, repentance is something that's a change of heart. And, and what we see right here is when there is that genuine repentance, then there should be the genuine restoration. Paul says, now this guy, he's, he's, so, he's back, man. He's on the same page. So comfort him and forgive him. Reaffirm your love to him, lest he be swallowed up with too much sorrow. As he says there in verse 8, I, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. 
Now, when there's genuine repentance, there should be genuine restoration. But here, here's a thing, and I think we, we need to know this as a church. You don't restore someone until they've come to that place. Um, here's the thing. When someone does something against you, forgive them. Forgive them right away. Okay? Because otherwise, if you don't forgive them, who's hurting? Who's really going to suffer for that? You will. Right? You're going to have your own bitterness. Right? But the forgiveness that Paul is talking about right here is a restoration back into a place. Perhaps it's a position or it's a, you know, some uh, place that they were in. Paul says that right there requires genuine repentance. And that's a different story. Uh, the Lord will show you when someone is true. Now, Paul loved this guy. Uh, Paul reached out to him. Look at verse 9. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient <coughs> in all things. You see, in order to restore someone, in order for the church to be healthy as a congregation, I, I think there needs to be loving communication, but there also needs to be this, this church that, that has obedient cooperation. You know, in this case, Paul is the leader. In this case, Paul is the apostle that Jesus had appeared to him. And it's a little different then than it is now. Now we have the whole New Testament, but remember back then we didn't in, in a certain sense. And so... Paul is saying, I'm going to test you guys to see whether or not you're obedient. And that's why it takes cooperation in a church for all the individuals to rise up and be restored and to be healthy. You know, and so he's actually testing that. Let me see how you guys do, right? And, and verse 10, it talks about a mutual uh, 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 ministry in which they're forgiving and he's forgiving. Um, verse 10, it, it, for some reason, some might look at that and they think, oh, that's where we get confession, you guys. Any of you guys go to confession to a priest? You guys remember how that was? Father, uh, forgive me for I've sinned. It's been 10 years since my last confession. <laughs> These are my sins. And he says, okay. And he's listening to us. And next thing you know, he says, okay, go out there and say, you know, uh, active confession. What's it called? Uh, yeah, not whatever. Hail Marys and, you know, whatever, our fathers, and then you'll be okay. No, that's, I think even we know that that's weird. That, that's not what this is teaching. Look again at verse 10. Now, when you forgive anything, I also forgive. So it's almost like Paul is saying, you you guys cool with it? You guys are there in the middle of the congregation? You see exactly what's going on? Okay, I'm with you on that, right? For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now, what this is, is in reference to the keys of the kingdom. And you'll find this three times in the Bible where the Lord gave the keys. For example, he gave them to Peter. And he said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Right? Later on in John chapter 20, the Bible says he breathed on them and he gave them the Holy Spirit and then said... You know, whoever sins you forgive, I forgive. This is for the remission of sins, right? And then uh, other times we read in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and John 20. And then even in John 20, 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, then they are retained. And what it simply means is that we, 
we um, have the word, we have God's authority given to us, even in one sense given through us, to be able to know how someone is really forgiven. Like if someone comes forward and they give their life to Christ, right? We can say, if that was sincere, if you prayed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you turn from your sins, then we have the authority to be able to say, you're, you're a Christian. You're forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful truth to know? And then, you know, along the way, when that, you know, Christian comes back to the Lord, we have the, the beautiful uh, promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we can share the message of forgiveness. We are free to do that. And that's really all Paul is saying. But what it takes, it takes a, a congregational cooperation, right, in the church. And, and that's what Paul is saying right here. In order to restore this individual, you know, when you see someone who has repented, then you can go ahead and move forward. Jesus made it super clear in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. He said, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And that's speaking of that aspect of restoring. Again, we need to be aware of the other extreme. I, I don't know about you. Um, are you guys honest people? Because I'll, I'll be, I'll, I'll be you know, honest with you. I'm a little bit probably lean more towards the lenient side. Okay, some of you are probably like that, huh? Uh, some of you, however, I've noticed now, you're way over there on the other side. Boom, 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 right? And, 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 and what we need to do is, is be balanced. Remember this, okay? Uh, uh, remember this. Love without truth is heresy. So people like that. Oh, I like that one. Right? All the ones over in that screen, right? <laughs> but remember this, truth without love is hypocrisy. We need to have truth and love as Christians, right? And remember this, love never slights holiness, G. Campbell Morgan said, but holiness never slays love. And so we need to have this balance. Lord, you're in the, in, the, in, the, in the business of restoring lives. You're in the business of taking that beaten down, old beaten down, and I saw one on the way over here today, and I was so excited, because growing up, I liked those old uh, Ford Rancheros. You guys know what I'm talking about now? Yeah. Fast. And I saw one today, and I was pointing out to my son, look at that, man, that's a beautiful car, you know? If a car can be beautiful, someone took the time and invested the the money and the resources to restore that, that vehicle. That's what God is doing in so many lives. That's what God is doing in us. And that's our prayer. We have to know, okay, well, how, as a church, how do we do this? Uh, number one, loving communication. Number two, obedient cooperation. And then we'll close with this. Uh, number three, a knowledgeable congregation. Look at verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. You guys got to know this. You guys got to know there's an enemy. You know, Pastor Chuck was talking about this. He was saying when you get into that conflict or that situation or, 
whatever that you know drama is, you got to know that this is a spiritual battle, and you got to go to your spiritual weapons. You have to know yourself. You have to know uh, your enemy. I mean, that's the way it is in life. There's one a Chinese military tactician. I think his name is San So. He said this. If you know not yourself, nor your enemies, you shall suffer defeat in every battle. He said, if you know yourself and not your enemy, for every victory you achieve, you shall suffer defeat. But if you know yourself and know your enemy, you need not fear the outcome of a hundred battles. And that's where we need to be as Christians. We need to know who I am, right? I'm a treasure. Even though I might not look like it, you may not think I am, I know who I am. I am God's son. I'm a treasure. I know who I am, but I know who my enemy is. My enemy is not that person. My enemy is not my son or my daughter or my wife or that person who cut me off on the freeway. You know? I know who my enemy is. It's, it's the devil and his demons and this flesh and the world that's under the sway of the wicked one. You see, and we can't be ignorant of his devices. Right here it says that if we are, then Satan would take advantage of us. And, you know, one says that we would be exploited. Another translation says that he'll outsmart us. The word uh, advantage right here, to take advantage, it means to make a gain. To make a gain on someone. You know, it's like a football player in one sense, gaining yards on their opposition. It also carries the idea of gaining more and more control over someone, even to the point of exercising superiority. You see, that's what the enemy's trying to do. David Guzik said it has the idea of cheating someone out of something that belongs to them. See, and that's what the enemy's trying to do. When we're ignorant <coughs> of certain strategies, he's able to take things from us that belong to us. It could be, you know, things like uh, we were talking about earlier, peace, joy, fellowship, uh, victory, uh, a sense of forgiveness. Those are things the enemy's trying to take away. You know, we can't be ignorant, it says right here, of his devices. And that's your iPad and iPhone. I'm just joking. That's not I always tell my kids that, oh, that's Satan's devices. No. It refers to the fact that we as Christians shouldn't be ignorant of the way the enemy thinks and schemes and strategizes and comes against us. This word translated devices is found six times in the Bible. It's usually translated mind. One time it's translated thoughts. We can't be ignorant of the way the enemy strategizes and thinks and the mentality that he has. You see, one of the things the enemy will do, and he was doing there in Corinth, he was trying to divide. And so don't be ignorant of that. Be cognizant of that all the time. Another thing he'll try to do is try to defile. And that was through the sexual sin, right? Another thing that he'll try to do is cut down on. And that's kind of what the context is right here. You guys got to restore that person, man. You got to let them know that even though they found a sexual sin, that they don't have to walk around like some second-class Christian any longer. They're free. They're forgiven. They are, you know, a blood-bought, babe believer in the Lord, you know? And, and you restore them when there's genuine repentance. Because otherwise, what the enemy does is he comes, and what he does is he condemns sometimes even Christians, where they lose their joy. You know, when, when, you, when you fail, you guys, when you fail, 
Okay, it, what happened is the enemy was luring you and he's tripping you. He's trying to make you fall. And then when you fall, he kicks you, right? He condemns you. You know what the devil does? He says, don't go back to church. Don't even think about getting involved in ministry anymore. And whatever you do, I don't want you to ever think that God loves you, that God's forgiven you. you got like an asterisk beside your name. And that's not the truth. Your sins are forgiven. They're nailed to the cross. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, the Lord deals with us like that. And we have to deal with each other like that. We have to see each other through the lenses of God's absolutely amazing love. And that's what he's trying to say right here. He's saying, you guys got to affirm your love to this individual. You've got to encourage him. You've got to restore him because he has, he has repented of his sins. Because we don't want the enemy to devour him. You know, We don't want Satan to swallow him. And you see, what God wants is for us to have this heart so that we can be used by the Lord to bring restoration to the lives of his people. I love the balance that Paul has, and my prayer is that we would all be, you know, balanced Christians. I think of Peter in closing, just uh, how the Lord, you know, you guys remember Peter, right? I mean, this guy was so close to the Lord, and, and he, you know, was one of his right-hand men, if not the right-hand guy that Jesus had, and, and, you know, they just kept warning him, and you need to pray, or you're going to fall, you need to make sure that you don't have any overconfidence, or you're going to fall, you need to... You know, he had followed the Lord at a distance. All these things led to his fall, warming himself by the enemy's fire. So when finally the push came to shove, Peter did deny the Lord. And they said, hey, you were with Jesus. I, I know you were. He said, what are you talking about? I swear to God, I don't know this guy. And then the next guy came. And then the next thing you know, the 14-year-old little girl says, no, Mr. Peter, I know you're with him. You know, you sound like a Galilean or whatever. And he just started going off. I don't know the man. I don't know Jesus. What are you talking about? And then right there, the Gospel of Luke tells us that, that Jesus walked by and looked at him. Then the rooster crowed. And then the devil came. And Peter was just overwhelmed with condemnation. But then when, you know, the Lord sent the angel to move the stone and greet the ladies on Resurrection Sunday, you know, the angel had a message uh, for Mary. She said, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'll meet them in Galilee. I mean, singling out Peter, reaching out to Peter, and then even after that, the Lord appears to these guys, and, and he's working with these guys. And then as time progresses a little longer, Peter just says, you know what? And he's just listening to the lies of the enemy. You know what? I'm going fishing. And in the Greek language, it's the aorist tense. It means a complete action. I'm going to be a fisherman, of, uh, a fisher of, of, of fish now, you know? I'm going back. And what happened, you guys remember, as he goes out, and he, and he even you know, leaves some of the other guys out there? Jesus goes looking for him. Hey, you guys caught any fish? 
no, I haven't caught any. Hey, throw it on the side right there. I think I see some, you know? <laughs> and then they throw the net and they have this big old catch. And, and <sighs> next thing you know, Daniel, it's the bar. He's relentless. He's coming after me. And so, you know, the Lord had some fish tacos ready for them. And he just started eating. And the Lord just, you know, for every time Peter denied him, he just kept asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Not only are you going to be a Christian, you're going to be a leader. Because God is in the business of restoring lives. There is treasure. Never forget that. Father, we thank you so much for who you are and even, Lord, for who you're making us to be. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would restore every life here today. That they would not believe the lies in any way. I pray there would be a brokenness. I pray there would be a genuine repentance where that's necessary, Lord. And as that takes place, I pray, Lord, there would be that wonderful restoration. Thank you, Lord. Because I know that as long as there's breath in these lungs, you don't give up on us. I love you. Thank you. Praise you. I ask that you encourage your beautiful people, Lord, as they go. And I just ask God that you help us uh, to know, you know, how to do that loving communication, how to be obedient in cooperation, Lord God, and how to even be a congregation that's knowledgeable understanding your God and the way the enemy operates. I love you, Lord, and thank you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.